Okay, if you have your Bibles with you, would you turn with me to the book of 2 Corinthians, please, in chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'm going to read from verse 6. The book of 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not Destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so spoke, We also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised Jesus, the Lord Jesus rather, will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Amen. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we want to thank you for the living reality of your word and that it is truth. And it's the prayer of our hearts that you would be pleased to open your word to us today. Lord, we ask you to encourage your people, to strengthen them, to sustain them, to enable them to know your hand of protection and enabling is upon them. Lord, we pray that you would deal with any fear that may be in our hearts. You would chase it out of our lives and we would be those that walk by faith and not by sight, who believe on you for everything in our lives, who trust you, Lord, because we know you're true and you never fail your word and you're not a liar. You always hold to what you say. Lord, we thank you that your word never returns back to you void. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who accomplishes his purposes. And Lord, we thank you that those purposes even include us small believers here, even in this area of Mottingham. Lord, we thank you for your detail in our lives. We thank you for your work. We thank you for your grace. And Lord, we ask of you that you would be pleased to grant anointing for the speaking of your word today and for the hearing of your word, and that the word will be mixed with faith that, Lord, we might be transformed by it, changed by it, and, Lord, we might obey what you say to us. Please help us, Lord. We look to you for strength and for sustaining power. Lord, 
Quicken to us what you want to say. Fill my mouth with words from you, Lord, we pray. We are trusting you for it. We stand into this grace that you've provided for us by faith, Lord. Please lead us now, and we will give you all the praise and all the glory. Arrest and, um, Lord, prevent any influence of the enemy upon this time, or indeed our own hearts deceiving us. Lord, shine your light out, we pray. For your praise and your glory in our lives, we ask all these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, essentially, I'm going to aim to home in a little, uh, focus mostly on verse 17. It is my intention to eventually get back to the book of Ephesians. It's been a couple of weeks now where I haven't spoken on the book of Ephesians, but God willing, next week I'll try and make a beeline for it unless the Lord intervenes and it's in his hands. But I tend to do that possibly next week. But for this week, I want us to focus on this passage that we've just read Together, I'm going to read again from verse 5 this time rather than 6. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Isn't this one of the most beautiful and amazing verses of Scripture that you can ever read? There's so much in it. You could meditate on this easily for a couple of weeks and not be done with it. There's so much in it for us to take on board. But what I want us to notice is that Paul the Apostle draws from the creation narrative in Genesis 1 to show us how... We come to salvation. Essentially, it's a picture for us of the way we are born again of the Spirit of God. He goes back to the creation narrative and says, essentially, this is a way, this shows us something of the way God worked in our lives when he brought us to saving faith in himself. And there's a wonderful thing for us. This is a wonderful thing for us to bear in mind. You see, the one who created the world is the one who recreated us in Christ, isn't it? It's the same person. And you know, if you go to an author and you read a particular author, you might read different books of the same author. But something of the same print, something of who they are comes through in the writing, doesn't it? Well, you've got to remember that behind the universe, behind creation behind your salvation isn't simply a set of principles but a person and oh friends we need to get back to the reality God is a person he's a living being he's the living God he has always been from everlasting to everlasting he is God and he's a living being and he has feelings and he wants to do things out of the counsel of his own will. This is the person we worship. That's why Christianity is not a dead religion, because we serve a living God, one who reigns, one who rules, one who is, the one who called himself I am. And so when you look at the work of creation, there's things in the work of creation that speak to you of what God has done in your heart in making you a new creation in Christ. And so what I want us to do is go back to Genesis 1 and look at a few things from Genesis 1 that speak of our salvation in the creation narrative. 
Genesis 1, please. I'm going to read from verse 1 of Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Remember that. That's the first sentence in the Bible. So whatever anybody else tells you, and what any scientist says against the word of God and tries to bring some clever argument about evolution, remember the scientist is not that old. What do I mean by that? I mean he wasn't there when creation took place. But God was there. He happens to know what happened. And we didn't just evolve. And there wasn't just a big bang and here we all are. Nonsense. God created the heavens and the earth. That's what the Bible says. You can take it or leave it, but you can't have an in-between. No, you can't. You either take by faith what God says, or you don't believe the word of God. End of story. Verse 2. The earth was without Form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now we're getting into the whole matter of the recreation of our lives by God's grace. Salvation. I like the bit though, in the beginning God created, because that's the true of your salvation as well. In the beginning, God created. You are a new creation. You're not something that you made of yourselves. We have not made ourselves. Psalm 100 makes that quite clear. No, we haven't made ourselves. We haven't sort of enabled ourselves to become new creations in Christ. To be created means there has to be a creator, doesn't there? So therefore, God has done the creating, not only in the world, but in us. Okay, verse 2. It says, the earth was without form and void. Now this phrase, without form, from the Hebrew, speaks of wasteness, vanity, confusion, and unreality. Wilson's concordance puts it like this. It says that the word from the Hebrew means waste and barren. A vast desert, a void place. That's what is spoken of about the world. But that was also true of our condition as we came into this world. We were part of Adam's fallen race and we were ruined. We were, as it were, there was a vast desert of barrenness and emptiness, a void place. And that's why you get in the world, people who don't have the Lord, they try to fill the void, don't they, with as many different things as they can to try to deal with the ache and the pain of loneliness and emptiness. And they think somehow by filling their lives with whatever it may be, television, phones, technology, immorality, whatever it may be, they somehow get a sense of satisfaction out of it and it never fills their, their need. Because deep down the need of man is God. And him alone. And in our lives, dear friends, there was vanity. Vanity was in our lives. What is vanity? It basically speaks of that which is false and a lie. And the whole world is built on a lie, friends. The whole world is built on a lie. Everything outside of Christ is vanity. It's lost. It's, it's death and destruction. And that's the condition that our souls were in before the Lord met with us and made us new creations in Christ. That's the state the world was in before the Lord intervened 
And so it is with the new creation as well. And he goes on to say, not only was the earth without form in this verse, but it was void. And that word void seems to extend upon the meaning of the first phrase, without form. It speaks again of emptiness, void, waste. Oh, there's so much waste and emptiness. When you look back in your life, and now a person who's been redeemed by the Lord, you can look back beforehand, you can think of all the wasted hours and days that you spent in vanity and pride, to quote the hymn writer. And it was a lost state of being, wasn't it? Well, that's the impression you get of the world before the Lord moves in and deals with it. But not only was it without form and void, but thirdly, there was darkness The scriptures speak here of darkness over the face of the deep. Darkness in scripture figuratively speaks of misery and destruction and death and ignorance and sorrow. And that's the condition of our hearts. Our hearts were darkened, were they not? We came forth into the world. We have physical eyes, but we were blind. We had light about us, but we had darkness inside our hearts. Dark, ruined sinners, waste places. That's what our hearts were before we were born again of the Spirit of God. We were under the influence of the powers of darkness. Ephesians 2 speaks about the spirits that now work in the sons of disobedience. As you go outside and you see people who aren't born again, it's not simply that they're making their own choices based upon their own free will. The spirit of this world is working in them. Now that's what the Bible says in Ephesians 2. Of course they're making their own decisions and they want to walk free from God, but the the powers of darkness are influencing the way they're living. It's a most horrendous thought, isn't it? That many of the decisions you made before you were saved were as a result of being governed by the powers of darkness. The God of this world, it says in 2 Corinthians 4, just a few verses before we started reading, that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. That's why you just can't reason somebody into the kingdom of God with good arguments because the God of this world has got their mind. And there's arguments raised up against the knowledge of God in their mind by the powers of darkness. And the enemy is very clever in the way he presents arguments to people in order to keep them away from seeing the light. Blindness, darkness. That's the condition that we're in. And that was a condition the world was in. But then look at what this next verse says. Um, Rather, the end of verse 2. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now we're getting to something positive. You see, there's this emptiness, there's this darkness, there's this vanity, as it were, and now we're going to see a reaction against it. That's what we're going to see. And we're going to see a reaction against it by God. Isn't it amazing that the Lord did things this way? He could have created the world any way he wanted, but he did it this way. And I think something of the reason we have this narrative and the way that God created things um, like this to show us what he's doing when he meets with us and when we're born again of his spirit. Okay, so the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The spirit of God, this word... um, 
to hover over speaks of a brooding over, or Gazenius puts it, to be moved, affected. The Holy Spirit was moving here. Now this is what happens when you're born again, isn't it? The Holy Spirit begins to move upon your darkness, upon your emptiness, upon your vanity. Something begins to happen. And you can sometimes see it in people before they even become Christians that they start to get disturbed about the way they're living. And they're not even born again yet. God is moving. There's a reaction. There's something happening that's beyond the natural eye. Something was happening here. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep. Over the face of the waters. Rather, And then verse 3 says, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. You see, that command came, comes right after the scriptures speak about the Spirit moving. Now think about what the Lord Jesus said concerning our salvation in John chapter 3. Do you remember this passage? The wind blows where it will. John chapter 3, we're going to read from verse 8. The wind, actually the word wind there in the Greek means both wind and spirit. Okay, that's what the word means. Verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes or where it wills and you hear its sound. You hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. In other words, if you're born of the Spirit, it's because the Spirit willed to move into your emptiness and your darkness. And that void place in your life. And he chose to begin to move. Don't ask me how it happens. The Bible doesn't give that kind of description. And if there was some kind of description in which way a person comes through to salvation, you can be sure we would try and be making a method of it from the days of the early church up till now. But no, doesn't show us. Just says the Spirit moves. Let me put it in terms of he here in verse 8, because Jesus is speaking about the wind, but it's obviously a clear reference to the Spirit of God himself. And the Spirit isn't an it. The Spirit is a person. So verse 8, let the wind blows, the Spirit blows where he wills. Okay. You cannot force the Holy Spirit to come upon anybody. And anybody who of themselves commands the Holy Spirit to come upon somebody is getting above their station, to say the least. Only the Lord, only the Lord, by the Spirit, where he wills, comes. You don't know where the wind comes and where it goes to. But you hear its sounds. 
So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Oh, friends, how we've devalued this whole reality of the new birth. The new birth isn't taking up a doctrinal statement and joining a church. You can belong to a church and not be born again. You can be in a Christian family and not be born again. You can be a nice person and not be born again. You can have Christian ease and not be born again. You can adopt the particular code and method of your denomination and it looks like you're a Christian because you follow that denomination's words and phraseology. It doesn't mean you're born again. How do you know when somebody's born again? Well, they strive to get through with the Lord of themselves. No. How do you know when somebody is born again of the Spirit? The Spirit of God moves upon that person. Now, I'm with the hymn writer. I know not how the Spirit moves, convincing men of sin. Right? All I know is that when I was a certain age, the Spirit came to me and the Lord made me a new creation. God is so good, isn't he? The Spirit of God is the one who gives the life. Well, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, Jesus said. And that which is born of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is spirit. Do not marvel that I say, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So it's just as we had in Genesis 1 about the Spirit moving upon the face of the waters, we also have the Spirit moving in the life of a person before they finally come through to the point I'm born again <laughs> I once heard of a man who was in a meeting and um, it, was, it, it, was, it was a meeting where Paul Washer was speaking and he finished speaking he, and he was coming down from the platform and he saw that this man was disturbed and he went and sat next to him and he said to him you're right and this man was really disturbed because he knew he had not got long to live. But he also knew he wasn't saved. He'd come to the realization, I'm not, I'm not born again. And they talked together and they discussed so many things and there's prayer and everything like this. And then at one point, the man said this. Um, it says, he said, yeah, he repeated the phrase, for God so loved the world. For God so and then he stopped. In the middle of the sentence of that scripture, this man suddenly stopped. He just went, I've been born again. <laughs> I've been saved. And Paul Washer said, how do you know? I know. <laughs> the Spirit of God came into him and totally transformed his life. How do you know you're born again? I go to Court Farm. Oh, don't ever say that, please. You'll have me in so much trouble if you go out saying that. No, no, no. The Spirit of God brings conviction 
of sin, doesn't he? And the Spirit of God moves and changes things in our hearts. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters and God said, let there be light and there was light. You see the command goes forth from God concerning this narrative in Genesis. The command goes forth, let there be light. It wasn't a suggestion. It wasn't an idea. It was the outworking of counsel of the Godhead. Let there be light. That's it. And the word went forth, and there was light. Well, what does Paul say in 2 Corinthians chapter 4? That the God who shined out of darkness, taking the creation narrative, has shone in our hearts. Not to give physical light, but spiritual light. And God looked upon your soul at some point and said, let there be light. And guess what? There was light. Why? Because God's word never returns back to him void. When God speaks, it's impossible impossible for him to speak words that become barren. And empty and wasteland. Why? Because he is God. He is life. It would be a denial of his own character. The closer you get to the Lord, the more living you are. (laughs) God said, let there be light. And there was light. And you know the hymn that Charles Wesley wrote. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine iron diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon, flame with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth and followed thee. That's it. That's it. That's salvation. The Lord sovereignly met with us. And graciously pierced the darkness that was pervading every area of our souls and brought light into us. Light in scripture speaks of truth. Do you know that? Light and truth go together within the word of God. Light. Is there light in you? Has the Lord come to you? And pierce the darkness and the light has come in. I hope so. But notice something else that the scripture goes on to say here in Genesis 1 verse 4. And God saw the light. Sorry. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. How do you know when somebody's been born again of the spirit? Light has come in and they've been separated from darkness. So they no longer live in darkness anymore. Amen? That's what happens. If you're born again of the Spirit, you must have a different life. If it's just religiosity, or if it's just, I'm a Christian label, but I live the same way I lived before I'm born again. Where's the separation? No, we've been separated. We've been 
removed. God has come in. That light has chased the darkness out of our souls. We have truth now. We, have a, we are new creations. We have a new principle of life within us. We have the indestructible seed within us. According to 1 Peter. Indestructible. In you. And we know that the word of God says in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 9 that somebody who is this new creation doesn't go on in sin and darkness anymore. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. When you're filled with the Spirit, when you're walking in the ways of God, you don't want to sin, do you? The old nature wants to, but when you're a new creation, you cannot go on living the same way you used to because you've been made new by the grace of God. Things that were once lovely to you become ugly to you, and things that were once ugly and repellent to you, you draw near to, you love. We've been separated, the light from the darkness, out of the kingdom of darkness, into the kingdom of the Son, of God's love. The scriptures speak about these things. Separated. Chosen in Christ for the purposes of God. Blessed be his name. So when we look at this creation narrative and we see that all these things from verse 1 right through to verse 5 speak to us of the new creation, we have much to thank God for. Because God has come to us, he has spoken his word and he's seen to it that the work that he has done in us is good. God never fails. God never does a half job. God never does a poor work. Do you realize that? There's nothing poor about God's work. There's nothing secondary about it. There's nothing that is, in a sense... Arbitrary. Everything that God does is important. Everything. And when he comes and saves somebody, it's a work of God by the power of his spirit that separates us, not only from darkness, but to be in the light forever. To live in light. To live in what is good. So back to 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Notice those two statements, if you will, in verse 6. Just secondly, it says that he has shone in our hearts. But previously he says that the light shines out of the darkness. Shone in, shines out. Isn't that an interesting statement? And the light does come in. But I think also there is a sense in which we can say there is a shining out as well, isn't there? What God shines in, shines out. There must be some difference in your countenance, in who you are, in your disposition of person when you're born again of the Spirit of God. That's why you never see a Christian ever miserable. Or you never see a Christian complaining about the fact they burnt the toast. Nothing like that ever, do you? Do you? No. 
Well, we've got this old nature that likes to rear its ugly head now and again, haven't we? But the fact remains that there must be something that shines forth. It's to the glory of God, but it can be that actually even in a look, even in your attitude within a difficult situation, that you become a witness to somebody who's currently darkened and under the God of this world. Do you realize that? It may not even be a word that you speak. It may be the way you react in a situation. And you can be sure that unbelievers will be looking at you. How are you going to respond? How are you going to react in difficult situations? In front of a fallen world that know only one way. And can't go against their fallen nature. They're bound by sin. The swearing, the cursing, the cussing, the backbiting that goes on in workplaces all up and down this country, the deceiving, the stealing, the mockery, we should be having nothing to do with it in the workplace. And even the absence of our enjoyment of other people's falling will be a testimony in this crooked day and generation. What is your speech like? How can Christians be swearing? You say, this is all too practical. We must be practical. If you're somebody that goes down the street swearing your head off, how can you say, the light has come into my heart? Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, and we will be justified or condemned by our words. What kind of witness are we bringing out to a fallen, perverse, lost generation? And you hear even of Christians living loose, moral lives. How can that possibly be? Well, we fall into sin, yes. But we are not meant to be living in sin. How shall we who've died to sin live any longer in it? That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 6, friends. You see, it's not just my words that is part of my evangelism. The evangelism is the life in me to a lost world. Is it shining forth? What kind of testimony have, got, have we got? Or are we those that kind of mix in with the way the world is, you know? It's, it happens, friends. It does. You get people in the workplace who claiming to be believers, and they're living the same way as the world, laughing at rude jokes. Can't do that as a believer, right? You're saying you're just picking on simple little instances. I'm talking about things that are really important this morning. If you can be in a group of people, perhaps a young person here, you're in a group of people and somebody says a rude joke, are you laughing with them? No, you can't participate in that, right? You have to say, excuse me, this isn't for me. I used to be with you in that. You know, there was a famous theologian called Augustine in the 5th century. And Augustine was a womanizer. 
Okay? He used to just have various mistresses. And one day he's going down the street and one of his mistresses is there and he passes by her. And she said, Augustine, it is I. And he turned round to her and he said, yes, but it is no longer I. That's what happens. People's lives get changed when they're born again of the Spirit. It's no longer I that liveth. We used to sing this lovely chorus when I was a kid. It's no longer I that liveth, but Christ that liveth in me. I think we used to sing it when people got baptized at my old church back at Thamesmead. It's no longer I that liveth, but Christ that liveth in me. He lives, he lives. Jesus is alive today. I'm a new creation. I don't live anymore, but Christ lives in me. So it's not just that I have a new set of principles about what's right or wrong, but I am now transformed by the power of the Spirit to live on that level. To live that way. Not to just believe that way, but to live that way. Do you see? Christianity isn't a Christianity of words. We don't just believe in words, but we believe the gospel comes with power to change a person. To transform a person. So the light shines in, but it's got to shine out as well, right? The testimony is that if it's God's light that's come in, there will be a shining out of darkness that will be evident. This isn't to say we live sinless lives. This isn't to say we don't slip up. Of course we do. John says in his first epistle that we do sin. If anybody says that he doesn't sin, he's a liar. Of course we slip up, but if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Yes, a Christian slips up, but somebody deliberately living in sin, willfully, you've got to question whether that seed that is so powerful that's placed into the life of somebody when their new creation has come into that person's life. Because there's no principle of change. Well... I trust that that isn't so of us and that you and I have things that accompany salvation, that we have the light shining in and shining out to the glory of God. Now verse 6 says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The light of the knowledge. God's knowledge isn't simply academic knowledge. It's light. It comes and it comes and it's revelation to you. It illuminates your innermost being. Every time you receive from the Lord through the word of God, it's like it has a purifying effect upon your soul, doesn't it? Oh, I trust you're in the word. I trust I'll be in the word more and more and more and more. So that we know these refreshing times where the spirit of God comes and just purifies. us. If you can live your Christian life without being in the word of God each day, something is defective about your Christian life. It must be. I don't think any of us would go through a week without eating, unless we're fasting, of course. But we wouldn't, we wouldn't think about getting the bowls out in the morning and the cornflakes or the frosties or whatever you have. Your Weetos or your chocolate cereal. Or you have your oats and granola or whatever you have in there you don't think too thin you don't think oh well I won't eat this morning give it a miss for a week or two everybody think there's something wrong with you the, Jesus said this man shall not live by bread alone 
You want to live physically, you'll live by bread, but that's not how you're going to live. You can't. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. If you're not feeding on this book, I promise you, you're feeding on something else. It might be demonic poison. It might be that you're feeding off your own anxieties. It might be that you're feeding off those silly soaps that they put on the television. Forgive me. (laughs) It might be that you're feeding off whatever the latest newsreel is, and that becomes your diet. Man shall not live by bread alone. That means if you are going to live spiritually, you need this as much as your breakfast. You say, I'm not a Bible teacher. You'll never become one, unless you get into this. (laughs) But listen, in all seriousness, you and I, we both need to be in the Word in these days. When you go outside, everything's visual, isn't it? Have you noticed that? We live in a visual age, don't you? It's screens, it's boards, it's the way people dress, it's this. Look at me, I want your eyes. And the eyes are the window to the soul. And just your eyes can go in the wrong direction. And the world, the flesh and the devil are saying, come after me. Man shall not live by bread. You need your eyes to be in the book. And that will help you against the dirt that your feet pick up as you walk through the day. Cleanse you. Cleansing with the word of God. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Well, brothers and sisters, are you into the word of God? I I didn't mean to say that. I'm not trying to condemn you. Friends, if the Lord measured me on how faithful I'd be in the word of God, how could I stand? But brothers and sisters... My own neglect, my own lack of knowledge of the Word of God. It's no excuse for me. I need to be more and more into the Word of God. You need to be more and more into the Word of God. And you know what stops most of us being in the Word of God? It's just one word. One of our biggest enemies today, do you know what it is? It's called screens. Whether it be one of these horrid things, or whether it be your computer. Well, now I'm just going to preach to myself for the next few minutes. Off the screens and into the book. Hallelujah. Feed on Christ, friends. If you don't, there won't be a passivity. It won't be that you will just, in a sense, continue with feeding on nothing. You're made to feed. It will either be the Word or it will be something else. Feed on Christ. He is the living bread. William Williams, a famous Welsh hymn writer, 
said these words, Bread of heaven, bread of heaven, feed me now and evermore. Feed me now and evermore. Let's go on to verse 7 for the sake of time. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. What is the treasure? It's the previous verse, isn't it? The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This treasure of light of Christ in us is in jars of clay. Isn't that an amazing statement? A, a clay jar, a common metaphor, is a common metaphor in the ancient world for human weakness. You can see this in Psalm 31 verse 12 and Isaiah chapter 30 and verse 14. Clay is weak. Clay is breakable. It can easily break. That's the point of saying this treasure is in jars of clay. Paul is actually saying that the treasure, obviously that is gloriously the wonderful gospel of our Lord, but it's not in our glorified bodies yet it's in our physical bodies in our weakness I don't know about you but physically I don't always feel strong in fact most of the time don't particularly feel physically on top of the world I'm sure you can say the same we feel our weakness we are vulnerable creatures we are those who are here today and gone tomorrow. And the reason that the Lord has so caused the treasure of the light, of the knowledge of the glory of God, something of his light, to be within us as jars of clay is to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Isn't that a wonderful thing? God doesn't choose the strong of this world to prove his greatness. He doesn't need to. His greatness is not proved in human strength, but in human weakness. Because if humans who are weak overcome, then everybody knows that the overcoming power cannot be of the jars of clay. It must be of the living God. You cannot overcome by willpower of yourself. You can't. You might have real strong resilience. You might be able to somehow be a person that can push through and endure difficulty and hardship for quite some time. But I can assure you that the Christian life is too hard for us in and of ourselves to be able to overcome the oppositions that we face. Oh, we need to know ourselves as jars of clay. Not those that are full of strength and resilience. And if you're somebody who's naturally got a lot of gifting and strength and ability of yourself, if God's going to use you, he's got to break you to the point where you realize that you are just a jar of clay. So that he can take up. He can take up your life, and prove his power in your weakness. I've never known anybody used of God that hasn't been broken by God. Never, never. The people that are used of God are those that are know they're nothing in and of themselves. And God will use various means throughout your life to bring you to an end of yourself when you finally realize, I cannot do this. 
And the Lord has then says, okay, I'll step in, so to speak. God will then come to the aid of his servant and really bring them through. But listen, it's like you come to a point where you can't walk any further and you have to fall over. And unless the Lord Jesus is on the other side, the fall's going to go right to the right into a pit, and there's the Lord Jesus. We cannot stand of ourselves. Think of Simon Peter, friends. Here's a man who had a lot of strength physically. Simon Peter was a real man's man. He wasn't a weakling. And he was somebody who had strength in and of himself. And he said to the Lord, if I have to go to death with you, I'll do it. And the Lord says, you're going to deny me. And then Peter rebukes the Lord, so to speak. He thinks in his heart, no, the Lord's really got this wrong. He doesn't know how much I love the Lord. He doesn't know how strong I am. You're going to deny me, Peter. No way, no way. I've got your back, Lord. And Peter denies the Lord and then remembers what the Lord Jesus said. And Jesus had said to Simon Peter, basically you're going to fall. Satan has asked for you to sift you as wheat. I hear Christians, I've heard Christians in various meetings go around as though they can rebuke the devil left, right and center and it doesn't matter. They're in control. They, are, they have power. Really? You and I, of ourselves, without the authority and power of God, are no match for the devil. I'm sorry. It's not going to happen. We need to know our own weakness. Satan asked the Lord for Simon Peter. But the Lord Jesus interceded for Peter, which prevented Peter from utterly falling. What was the saving of Peter's soul? It was the intercession of his high priest. What's the preservation of your soul when Satan asks for you? It is the intercession of the Lord Jesus. How do you know that you couldn't have easily been tripped up at certain times, but the Lord Jesus has stood in the way? We are weak. We need to come through to the realization that we're weak. And Simon Peter came through and is raised up of the Lord. He preaches on Pentecost and is used of God. And the second time, when it's coming to his martyrdom, he doesn't fall away. Why? He's not standing on the strength of his own willpower, he's standing in the strength of the power of God. Totally different. Okay. Now, that's not to say that when we endure, we're not to use our wills. We need to press in, but we need to realize that the power is of God and not of us. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. Just okay. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. 
God makes weak to make strong. Out of weakness we become strong in him. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, it says in Ephesians 6. And the power of the gospel to affect others through us is real. And if it's in jars of clay, the only person that gets glory is the Lord. Now notice verse 8. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Now think of it for a minute, dear brothers and sisters. Look at what Paul is saying we go through. He says we're afflicted, perplexed, we are um, persecuted, we are struck down. These are all very painful, difficult things that Paul is preaching. But he says, we're afflicted in every way, but we are but not crushed, but not driven to despair, but not forsaken, but not destroyed. Why is this? How can a man endure all these things? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Do you know the scriptures say in 1, uh, 1 John chapter 5 and verse 4 these words for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world and this is the victory that has overcome the world our faith. Why is it that we overcome Is it because of means of our own strength? No, it's because what is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And even the faith we have is given by God. It's all of him, do you see? So when the Lord says overcome to you, and when the Lord says you need to overcome this situation, you can't say, no, it's impossible, Lord. Because with the command of the Lord comes the power of the Lord to fulfill what he commands. The Lord will not command of you something in your walk with God that you won't be able to accomplish by his power. But you won't be able to accomplish it by your own power because you're just a jar of clay. And so am I. But in his power, in his strength, in his enabling, in his equipping, in his sustaining, yes, We might be brought down. We might be brought to difficulty. But even if we be persecuted, not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Wonderful statements of scripture. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Verse 11. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. It just reminds me a little bit as well of that scripture that John the Baptist said about I must decrease and he must increase. I need to get out of the way. The more life of Christ flowing through me, the better. For his praise and for his glory, but also for a lost and fallen world round about me. And for the sake of the brethren. Verse 13. Since we have the same spirit of faith, 
according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. See the certainty of those statements. But I just want to finish a bit further down. For it is not for it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Do you see why we don't lose heart? It's not of ourselves. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inward self is being renewed day by day. Isn't that an amazing statement? As a believer, you may not see it, you may not feel it all the time, but God is working in you. Yes, your outer self is wasting away. Yes, there are things that you feel are wrong with you physically that were not wrong with you before. You feel aches, you feel restricted, you feel limited somehow. But the fact remains that your inner self is being renewed every day of your life. Why? Because God is working in you. He's working in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. You might feel restricted somehow physically. You can be somebody who's on their sickbed, as it were. You're just laying down. You feel there's nothing you can do for the kingdom of God. And you want to get out there and you want to serve the Lord. And yet you feel restricted by an illness or something that the Lord has overseen in your life that somehow is a paralysis to you, seemingly, in your Christian life. And you're in that state of restriction and you're thinking oh Lord if only you would just lift this restriction from my life I'll be able to serve you I'll be able to do this for you I'll be able to do that for you and actually the Lord is working in you in that situation the Lord is working in you there's there's no accident concerning the relationships that you have the Lord is working in the situation Concerning difficult relationships. God is working. God is doing something in that. He may be dealing with something of your old nature. Not to bring you down. But to bring you through with himself. Ultimately to bring you to the point where you're changed. You're transformed into the image of the Lord Jesus. That's the purpose of God in it all. We don't see it necessarily. But God is working in difficult situations in our lives. Our old Natural life, as it were, physical life, is wasting away, but our inner man, our inner self is being renewed day by day by the power of God. So Paul says in verse 17, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now notice that he says that his affliction or our affliction is light. But when you read the description of affliction in the previous verses we've just looked at, you would never think that it was light, would you? I hope you wouldn't. I mean, it's not light in and of itself, is it? Being struck down... Wait, what does it say? Let me get back to that verse. Yes, that's it. Um, verse... Yeah, we're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven. Despair. Persecuted, but not... Struck down, but not destroyed. All these things... And yet, Paul says that our affliction is light. Why? It's not light in and of itself, but it's light in comparison with something else. What is the other thing? 
the, an eternal weight of glory. Notice the word light, then notice the word weight. The affliction is light in comparison with the weight of glory, which shall great of glory beyond all comparison. So you remember Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's the same word. So even when his burden feels heavy, he's going to give the grace to be able to endure it. And when you consider what is to come in the light of what you face, currently, it's no comparison, is it? That's not to minimize or somehow make light in a wrong way of any affliction we may be going through. It's to say that God is working in that affliction to produce an eternal weight of glory. And therefore, the affliction can be seen as light. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us or working for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That's why in the midst of your affliction that you feel is too difficult to face and in a sense you feel in and of yourself, you can't cope with it, it's too much. Remember, God is working in our affliction that we face to be a means of preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That's an incredible thought, isn't it? God is working in the hardship, in the difficulty. Verse 18, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, they're passing away. There's nothing to them, but the things that are unseen are eternal. That's something that we need to take to heart. So brothers and sisters, remember that all that you're going through as believers in the kingdom of God, however difficult, whatever hardship you're facing, don't lose heart or don't think that that particular affliction is arbitrary or I just have to get through it until I can serve the Lord again. No. All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. In God's economy, nothing is wasted. Everything has a purpose. Nothing is without reason. God is working in us, both to will and to do, for his good pleasure. God is training us. God is changing us. God is edifying us. God is dealing with things in our lives that are currently in opposition to him by means of our own circumstances. And even when Satan tries to get in on the back, God will even turn the whole thing around and work in it for his glory in our lives. So brothers and sisters, don't lose heart. The affliction is light. It's momentary. Yes, it's with you now, but we're here today and gone tomorrow and then eternity is forever, right? And we need to try and live within that mindset. And as we meditate regularly on the word of God, take the scriptures to heart, we will so be able to do that. We need to look ahead. You know, don't lose hope. Have hope. Think of what's to come. Hope is the engine room of endurance. You can't endure without hope. But if you maintain this hope of what is to come, Christ in you, the hope of glory, you'll be able to endure the difficulties that you face in the present, knowing that these very difficulties are producing for you a far more exceeding, eternal weight of glory. You'll never regret when you get to glory 
having to face what you've endured in the present as a believer. Actually, it worked for you even greater. Something more glorious. Something more wonderful. Some of you are struggling with various things. You're going through difficulties. You're going through hardships. The temptation is to believe what the devil would put on your soul. Oh, you're, God's finished with you. It's because you are doing this wrong and you're doing that wrong. God hates you. Turn away from him. Why don't you curse him? And you need to stand on the word of God and say, No, this affliction is working for me. An exceeding weight of glory. I'm not going to look at the things that are seen and judge them by the natural sense, but I'm going to look at what is unseen and believe God for what he says in his word. Yes, there's afflictions. Perhaps other people don't even know about your afflictions, but God sees them. And it's not that God belittles your affliction, but he's telling you in the light of what he has for you, it's light. And secondly, he's working in that afflictions to bring you to that glory. So brothers and sisters, lay it to heart. Remember finally what the scriptures say in the book of Romans chapter 8 and verse 18. This is our last verse. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Consider, think, ponder these things. Realize the truth. Weigh up the facts. Consider. These sufferings are hard. They're difficult. They're almost impossible. But Paul says, and I'm not speaking to you out of my own experience, I'm coming to you with what the apostle said, and oh, didn't that man suffer? He said, I consider that the suffering of this present time this present time, it's only for a little while, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Friends, don't look at the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. Hold fast to the word of God. Realize God is working in your life. You don't think he is. You think somehow your ministry, your work has gone to waste. No! God is doing something profound in you that to him is of greater importance than your immediate ability to do as you will. And therefore, trust him because he's doing something beyond what you see now. But it will be of eternal worth and blessing. And one day, one day, You'll come into it all. Let's be those that not focus on what is seen, but what is unseen. And trust the Lord for all our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you for this morning. We want to thank you for your word. We want to pray that you would write it on our hearts and encourage us in the truth of the word. And we pray that we would be those that feed on your word. Cleanse me, Lord where I have not fed on your word as I ought. Lord, cleanse us all for our lack of 
diligence in meditation and feeding on the scriptures and allowing our minds to be filled with what is true. Oh God, please help us. And thank you for this glorious weight of glory that awaits the saints of God. We bless you, we worship you, and we commit ourselves into your hands. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen.